Okay. Um, do we want to do the theme song or should we edit in post? I say let's, I don't know. Do you want to intro it? I'm going to talk a lot, so maybe somebody else should edit it. I can intro it, yeah. <clears throat> okay. How's the intro go? I don't know. Thank you, Marcy. Really glad you're here. Oh my god, is she gonna jump? You're really making. <laughs> Marcy, you're really making a case for getting kicked out right now. Uh oh, now she's gone <laughs> she's into like, the hole. Try to get me. I'm in a box. Help! <laughs> <laughs> she's like, it. yes, yes, he's gonna try to get god me. Damn! Can't. And with a, <laughs> she was gone. <laughs> But yeah, Aaron, just uh, we're approximate knowledge, I guess, right? We're approximate knowledge. Make it up. We're in the, Salt the, Lake the City. The way you intro it is the way we intro it. We've only done it once. Oh, and uh, we should you should try out some of our sound uh, sound things today. I think we'll get a chance. I think you'll get a chance. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Hey, welcome to Approximate Knowledge with Aaron, Nick, and Jade. This will be our second episode, <laughs> and we are excited for it. It's going to be a good one. It is going to be good. Let's, uh, yeah, no, yeah, we hope it's great. Fingers crossed. Super good. Good job, Aaron. <laughs> Put on your radio guy voice there at the beginning. Well, yeah. I mean, I I don't think that was a bad thing. It's fine. It's good. All right. So, Jade, you've been researching a story for a couple of days that you wanted to present yeah, to us. Yeah, I have a story for you all. So, uh, one thing that we never really talked about when we were talking about this podcast and the content that we uh, create was uh, like true crime. <laughs> At all, really? But surprise! It's a true crime prod- <laughs> podcast. We decided we were just doing some marketing research, and we decided that true crime podcasts are not like totally saturated at this point. There's room uh, for a lot more. And I mean, I enjoy oh, myself funny. some some true crime podcasts. I know you all have listened to some as well, uh, but. Like, okay, so I guess I'll start with how I came across this story. About a week or two ago, I was working on a spreadsheet of victims in Utah who had been killed by police. And kind of going back and um, just just documenting it um, as far back as records go, which basically uh, easily accessible public records are are only good back to like 2014 and this story is right on the right on the edge of that because uh it happened in 2014 barely so can you think of anything that happened in 2014 that might have caused <laughs> police to yeah it, because uh, most of the well most of the names that i got were actually from killedbypolice.com and uh as many of you know um 2014 was the year that Mike Brown was shot in Ferguson, um, and a lot of attention was Trayvon also to police crimes. Trayvon was, it, was earlier than that. Was it like the end of 2013? It was, yeah, it was like 2013. Okay. Was it even 2012? No. 
Can somebody look at that real quick? Approximate knowledge. <laughs> I know. I feel like I really should get, know this, but there's can, just so many dates. It's just yeah. real difficult. Yeah, it was it was in 2012. So, um, so that definitely woke up a lot of conversation around racism and white supremacy in the U.S., but then the focus on police killings and footage and body cameras and stuff really took, like, there's the huge upsurge in 2014 with the rise of, like, Black Lives Matter movement and, um, yeah, all of that. So, when I was going through and creating the spreadsheet, though, I was looking up the, one of the things that I was adding to this was the police department's that were responsible for killing these individuals. And that's not something that's listed on um, the, the killedbypolice.com like site. So it's something I kind of had to Google unless I knew mm. and um, look up because I thought that would be valuable information to be able to look at departments across the state and see how many killings and how frequently um, they're, they're involved in police shootings. And when I Googled this story... It came up with uh, a man who actually was he he was actually involved in um sorry it's gonna be kind of a timeout here I have to edit this out that's cool it's easy I, to cut stuff out I was wondering that if we should go back to like Trayvon Martin and then just act like we knew when it happened. <laughs> And just say it all in one line so you can just cut out where we didn't know. Or we could just I don't think have the podcast the... is about making us look smarter than we are. <laughs> I know, but like... Yeah. <laughs> um, if you're editing it anyway. Well, <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> there, is this, there is this man, Jose Angel Garcia Horaguay, um, who was killed by police. Uh, but he was involved in actually shooting some officers and a bunch of things went down. And one of the details that stuck out to me was that his he had a girlfriend that was 17 years old and uh, was there as well. So I just got very curious about that and wanted to learn more. So without like saying too much before I start, um, most of my stories focused on his girlfriend but, okay, yeah, if you guys are ready. I mean, I pulled a lot of this information from local news articles. Um, we're going to post links to all of those articles, like, in our show notes. And also, there was, like, a short, <laughs> I ran across a short um, episode about the incident that was written for, like, some crime series. It's so bad. <laughs> it's, it's so it's bad. It's terrible. In I cannot recommend it. Although I, uh, it was useful for building my timeline around events because a lot of the articles I had, you know, like referred to things and I got a lot of information, but they weren't necessarily in chrono, like the information wasn't in any kind of like chronological order or anything. So, so it was useful for, for that, but I do not recommend it, but it's a show forbidden dying for love. And, um, yeah. So we can post that as well in the links. All right. So her name is Megan Dakota Grunwald. 
She was born August 5th, 1996, which puts her at like 20. How old? 20. What is it? What's the year? 2020? <laughs> 24. Uh, her mother was Tori Grunwald who had brain injuries and learning disabilities from a car accident that she was in when she was 13 years old. And her father was Jerry Grunwald. So mom, Terry, dad, Jerry. Cute. <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> yeah. And her father was confined to a wheelchair when he was injured in a firefighting accident several years before. And it sounds like for most of her growing up, um, he was in a wheelchair. So, she was an only child, and according to a lot of um, statements that were made in court later, she was raised in abject poverty due to the fact that the only income in the household before Megan began working herself was the disability payments that her parents received from the government. Great job, Sesh. Which we know how generous they are with disability payments, Just which is not very generous. <laughs> but as a 17-year-old, she was attending school she was a part of a lot of clubs um and extracurricular programs it sounds like and sh then she also began working her parents though did not have a good relationship so it wasn't a very happy home because her parents were both home together all day and both needed a lot of assistance from megan but they also fought a lot they argued constantly and megan kind of had to take up that burden of like taking care of her parents and um, also just kind of had to become, like, you know, take care of herself because she didn't have parents there to help take care of her. When she needed a break from arguing at home, she'd go to a neighbor's house, Kristen Allred's home. Kristen Allred, oh, and this is all in Draper, Utah. So the setting, Draper, Utah. <laughs> um, but she would go to Kristen Allred's home and Kristen was a neighbor, like, lived nearby around the corner and was a friend of Megan's. Like, I think Megan um, was friends with her daughter originally, but then built a relationship with Kristen as well and called her mom uh, and would go over to do her homework and hang out all the time. According to Kristen, Megan had low self-esteem that she hid under a bubbly exterior and was a little bit of a tomboy. She goes on to say that Megan was also such a wonderful, sweet girl and was always willing to help out and asking how she could help others. Reportedly, later, it was also um, reported that Megan had also had learning disabilities at school and needed to have like written material read aloud for her. So she had a lot of struggles at home. Um, there is evidence that her father was physically abusive, like would smack her or hit her at times, and uh, that there had been domestic disturbances in her home. One day when, in August 2013, so I imagine that's the beginning of her school year as like a senior in high school, it seems like, because she was, she was 17, 17. but uh, her birthday's in mm -hmm. August. Yeah, like yeah so she just turned 17. Um, but she went over to Kristen's house as normal to do homework, and Kristen introduced her to a man named Angel. Uh, Angel was 26. He was originally from Mexico, and he'd recently moved to Draper for a job at a meatpacking plant. 
a co-worker suggested that he rent a room at the All Reds. And according to Kristen, he was very shy and polite and asked permission to do anything around the house. Uh, so after being introduced, Angel began helping Megan with her homework regularly, um, which is why Kristen kind of introduced him because she knew that he might be able to help Megan with the homework. Um, so that was kind of the context of their introduction. According, Sorry, I, I, I think you already said, how old was he? Oh, and he was he was 26 years old at the time that they met. Okay. Although later Megan would say she didn't know. He he told her that he was 23. And so she thought he was a little bit younger, but then found out he was actually 26 later. So he was 26 years old. Okay. And how old was she? And she was 17. Okay. And so according to... uh, Darcy Allred, which is was Megan's friend, Kristen's daughter. Megan and Angel had an instant connection in Spark. They had a like just obvious kind of like love for each other. And that was pretty obvious and instantaneous from the time that they met and he started helping her with homework. That concerned Kristen Allred a great deal. And she said, <laughs> we can have some conversation about this, but she said, oh, one big point is that all of these families, as is very common in the suburbs in Utah, are Mormon or were LDS. Everyone in this story is Mormon? I'm not sure about Angel, but uh, yeah, but Kristen Allred and her family were Mormon and then also uh, Megan and her parents and grandparents. Okay. So. Active Mormon? Uh, yeah, I believe okay. so. Uh, well... I'm not sure. They didn't specify, but they did. Yeah, it was pretty pretty Mormon. Uh, so she said, Kristen, again, this is her talking about Angel and her concern, was, I feel like the church, like most reasonable adults, would frown in something where somebody was 17 and he, hanging out with someone who was 26 years old. <laughs> yeah. Somebody needs to tell her about Joseph Smith. <laughs> <laughs> Brig of Young. Any of those guys, they didn't seem to have a problem with it, so. It was a different time. I mean, I'm not trying to justify anything, but just the fact that she's like, the church says, like, they would be unhappy about this. Not even about, like, the law or anything. It's just so Mormon. Yeah. Just so Mormon. The law in Utah, I think, is you can date someone 17 if you're 26, right? Because if you, 17, 18. 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. <laughs> it's close. It's like a nine-year age difference. Yeah. yeah. It's like seven, right? I hope that's Isn't not it? protected by law. I think it's... You Utah can be does 15. have some wacky laws that way. I mean... It's 15 if you have seven years difference. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. We could look it up. It seems like it wasn't allowed because it kind of comes up later as well. So it seems like it wasn't legal. Um, but she, so she confronted Megan and Angel about their relationship separately. Um, and as you can imagine, it didn't go super well. So when she brought up her concerns with Megan, she, uh, Megan adamantly denied that there was anything to be concerned about. She said that Angel was old and claimed that like nothing was going on and she really wasn't interested in like, ew, no. And just really said like, really shut that idea down. Um, but Kristen was undeterred. And so she also talked to Angel in this situation and said, well, you know, you're 26. She's a teenager. 
If something were to happen, it might cause trouble. Folks get all riled up. A guy with your past, word travels easily. (laughs) Also kind of helping to illustrate some of Utah's culture. She really draws in like the, but the neighbors won't approve. And (laughs) just like the reliance on um, the cultural normativity of Mormonism as the morality of like her decision making, Uh which I think is... (laughs) ridiculous and very Mormon. But Angel was also very quick to deny that anything that had happened. Um, he said he he doesn't like what Kristen was implying. He said, I don't even know her. I'm helping her with her homework and that's it. However, um, well, fair to say that talking to Megan and Angel didn't do much for Kristen's concern. And because she was still pretty uneasy about it, she started to implement some rules about them, like only doing homework and supervised areas, only uh, <laughs> only uh, meeting together like at certain times just to kind of like keep them from developing a more intimate relationship. So she just tried to put up little barriers since they weren't going to admit anything or cooperate. And Aaron's making a super shocked face. So do you have something to say? <laughs> say it. So... <clears throat> According to LegalMatch.com, it says Utah is among the few U.S. states that have separate ages of consent for women and men. For women, the age of consent in Utah is 16 years old, while for men, it is 18 years old. However, for women between the ages of 16 and 18, there are some restrictions. No person under the age of 18, male or female, can legally consent to sex with a person who is more than 10 years older than the minor. Ten years, so, uh, so he was technically in the clear. So he was in Utah law? nine and a half years, I guess. Not only that, in Utah, a minor aged fourteen or fifteen can legally consent to have sex with a person who is less than four years older. So, a fourteen-year-old can consent to a sexual intercourse with a person as old as seventeen years of age. Well, good job, Utah. I mean, that kind of makes sense when you think about the context of high school. I knew, like, freshmen that dated, like, seniors or juniors or things. I don't, you know, like, I don't necessarily understand those 17-year-olds. The fact that this story was legally sanctioned. Right? Maybe we should review those. (laughs) Well, it was nine nine and a half years difference because there were times when he turned 27 and she was still 17. Mm. So, um, yeah. But still. What? That's yeah, that's, that's why I and was just like... Is that even, like, federal law, or, like, is there separate laws? I thought it was four. I was like, four, that sounds pretty intense. That's, like, high school. That's still, like, pretty old, but four, but I didn't know it was ten. Because even talking about it in the context of the court, they, and they like, that was an argument her lawyers made. So I feel like there must be, either maybe they adjusted the law recently, or, which could happen because Utah legislature signs, like, 500 pieces of legislation every year like in a huge rush but i mean or there's some other stipulations around that but um in any case so where are we okay Kristen, talk to them both they both say nothing's going on we're just we're just doing homework she tries to give them some rules and they're like following them but they start hanging out and meeting up in secret, too. So 
Uh, Megan has a truck. She'll like meet up with Angel somewhere and they just start getting closer, um, sharing more about their selves and building more of an intimate relationship. And um, Angel even tells Megan about his past that when he was younger, he went to jail and but it's not who he is anymore and he's changed. So um, also according to Megan's friends, like remember she was a pretty big tomboy, but she's in love as a 17 year old or enamored. I wouldn't say in love, but you know, she thinks she's in love. Yeah. I feel like they really <laughs> tried to beat in the idea that they're in love in that show just to basically say, like, yeah, we'll oh, get to there. We'll get, yeah. we'll get to that. Yeah. But but um, she started doing her makeup. Are you saying there was like a salacious? Uh, I think there's a salacious bit. I mean, it it even goes into her court case as well, like which I'll get into about that. But yeah, yeah, like dangerous lovers. I mean, you can also. It was on the show Forbidden, dying for love. I I think the whole point is like. <laughs> <laughs> to build up like these love stories. Yeah. Like, but to make it a love Sounds story. Gross as hell. Ruins <laughs> it seems the, gross as hell. And like, the acting just, is just awful. Tilts everything. Cause you can be in an abusive relationship and everyone else will think you're in love. So I think that's, I mean, you might think you're in love. Yeah. Like that happens all the time, but, um, and especially with a 17 year old, they don't know anything. And I mean, she was a tomboy and it sounds like she didn't really have any other boyfriends or, um, at least nothing serious or anything before Angel. And was already abused by her father, right? So, like, it, yeah. You know, like sometimes people can compare abuse to love very easily from their past yeah, as well. For so sure. It's just, it's just a, just a messy her thing. Her history definitely probably, and because, you know, her, her house was so troubled at home, having somebody recognize her and feeling like special and important, I think, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, definitely something that can manipulate and coerce young girls into doing things or boys or whoever. So, right. But her friend said that uh, her friend Callie Garrett said that she started to do her makeup, to do her hair, and she even dressed like a girl, which she never really did before. Um, after she started seeing Angel, she kind of like molded herself to Angel. And at some point, the two began having a sexual relationship. Bum, bum, bum. I, get, I think we all saw that coming. Yep. <laughs> but it's not exactly clear when or how that was initiated because they tried to keep it pretty on the DL. Uh, according to a crime reporter with the Daily Herald, Kurt Hansen, he said if a member of the community found out that Megan and Angel were having sexual relations, they could have said this is essentially child rape. Which, yes, I think they could have. He also stated that Angel gave Megan a promise ring that wasn't an engagement ring, but they kind of treated it like that. There was talk about a future together. They planned to maybe get married and have a family sometime, and then later, uh, yeah, well, sometime in September. So they met in August. Weeks go by. Their relationship develops. Uh... Kristen Allred confirmed that Angel and Megan had an ongoing relationship and she was very upset and confronted them. She was especially upset with Angel, who she figured was the adult in the situation. How many months have passed? What's the, this what's is the like, math on this? This is like maybe like a month. Okay. This is like a month. Summer in. to August? 
August to September. August to September. So in September, um, like maybe towards the end of September even. But uh, she confronted them after she confirmed that they did have an ongoing relationship. And like I said, she was especially upset with Angel, who she figured was the adult in the situation. She asked Megan if she even knew about Angel's ex-wife and children who still lived in Mexico. Oh, wow. And Megan did not. Oh. Neither did I. <laughs> so no. that kind of- How many of, children? Um, it didn't specify, but multiple children in Mexico. Um, when did he come to the U.S.? You know, like uh, probably, you know, like five to ten years before sometime. So, I mean, probably like five. If they were still in Mexico, he was pretty recently out of jail at this point in Draper. And I think he was in Draper. He was in Draper jail? I thought prison. he didn't he didn't stab someone in Mexico. No. It okay. was it was I think I believe it was in the US. Oh, okay. Also, because it was the same judge. <laughs> yeah. It was this like they had a quote from the judge there. Also did wasn't one of his girlfriends. But also pregnant? we haven't even gotten to that point yet. Aaron, why are what? you spoiling shit? I'm sorry. We could cut this out. Do you not understand how stories go? You don't just like give thought, the details. I thought all We're of not the there relationships yet. would happen all at no. once. We just talk about everything. But no, this is a mystery. <laughs> we are piecing our way through. Yes. Until the final juicy uh, ending. Yeah. So, um, so they ha- she, he so Megan is really upset about this at first, understandably. She didn't know he had these children, but also they haven't known each other that long. Um, And it sounds like he probably hadn't seen them for a while as well. But uh, she gets over it, even though Kristen tells her, like, you're not ready for something like that, Megan. Like, you're 17. You're a child. You can't have children. Like, stop it. But And she tried to stop the relationship um, at that point where she told Angel that if he continued to see Megan, he had to move out. And that he was not welcome in her home anymore. So at that point, Angel lashed out at Kristen saying something to the effect of, I don't care what you or anyone thinks. And if that's the way you want it, fine. I'm out of here. So he leaves. And Kristen was actually pretty hurt by this because up until that point, he had been a pretty, it sounds like she had a pretty positive relationship with him overall, that he was helpful. As she said earlier, he was polite And I think she wanted to, like, help him out and kind of cared about him, too. But was like, why is he being, like, doesn't he know this is dangerous and risky? And, like, you know, just kind of frustrated. But, and she didn't understand Megan either because Megan, you know, had called her mom since she was five. Was basic, she was basically, like, her, like, self-adopted stepmother. (laughs) And, but she also... Said, like, I think Megan felt good to have a boy, especially one who was cute, like Angel, give her love and attention. It seems like she hadn't had a lot of those positive feedback, like, the, gotten that type of positive feedback in her life before. But the day that Angel moved out of the all-red home, he met up with Megan, and Megan decided that Angel should live at her house. She had to beg her parents, especially her dad, to let him move in 
but she was able to succeed in convincing them, and he moved in the next day. Part of why they agreed to him living there is because she hid her relationship from him with them and just, you know, said he had nowhere to go and that he needed a place to stay. And also, he was paying like $100 rent for a room. Yeah, it'd be a strange thing to come up to your parents and be like, I met this 26-year-old <laughs> and they have nowhere to live. Can he live with us? Well, they knew that he helped her with homework, I think. And like, we're kind of fam familiar with who he was, but um, obviously she didn't share much about her personal relationship with him. So he he moved in to Megan's room, but Megan moved into her mom's room. I think she probably was with her mom, like shared a room or something. But um, Jerry, Megan's father, did not accept Angel from the beginning and he didn't trust him. Later, like her grandma, Jerry's mom, was saying that pretty much from the beginning he had a problem with Angel. He didn't trust him. He didn't want him there. And uh, he, at first, she thought it was kind of jealousy. Like she thought that, you know, he was jealous that Angel was taking more of Megan's time. He was worried about Megan, like just kind of like that father, fatherly, like not my little girl, like, you know, uh, yeah. possessive, weird uh -huh. dad's shit. But uh, also Angel did kind of show that he had quite a temper and um, didn't respect Jerry much either. So they would constantly be bickering now. So now oh, Megan has goodness. her parents constantly arguing, her dad and her boyfriend constantly arguing, but at least her mom gets along with Angel. You're sneaking around with a teenager <laughs> and living with her family and picking fights with her dad? Well, and sounds... showing your temper? <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. The nerve of some wild. people. Like, yeah. And I mean, it seems like her dad, you know, like it would happen where her dad came in and was like, Megan, like you, you know, do some like parent thing. And he'd be like, don't talk to Megan. And we're just, yeah. So lots of toxic masculinity in that household, I think. And then her mom is also pretty spicy. <laughs> like you'll see later, I'll read some quotes, but she, uh, she liked Angel. All right. She, you know, she knew he wasn't an angel. Um, which she says, like, literally later. But she also appreciated that he helped contribute to the household, that he helped with some chores and things around the house that they hadn't really been able to do before. And just and that he helped Megan with her homework. And um, yeah, so she was like pretty chill with him there overall. Moms, what? <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah, not 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 cool, mom. <laughs> But uh, is there something unique about um, Utah Mormon moms that they don't develop creep radar? I don't know. I mean, the, her mom. It could just be that they. I feel like it's just that they avoid. They don't want to think about it because they don't know how to confront it or address it, and it makes them uncomfortable. So they just don't even like. They just either avoid it or like maybe say something to Megan, but then like just listen to her. Cause like part of like her mom's argument to her dad too was like, what? You don't trust Megan. Megan's like a really good girl and we should trust our daughter. And Megan was saying nothing was going on. So I think her mom just didn't want to think anything was going on. That makes sense. Yeah. And wanted to believe her daughter and just didn't want to address something that was uncomfortable. 
and that Megan was going to deny anyway and already like argued about so uh but yeah so they they live there for a couple months and tensions only increase and it all kind of comes to a head in November November 2013 so he's lived there for about 2 months they've known each other about 3 months and although Megan and Angel denied having a sexual relationship to her parents they um, and were as secretive as they could be about their activities. Her dad definitely knew things were going on and was very upset by that. Um, and she did talk to her friends at school about their relationship. One friend, Rosa Smock, said that she didn't know Angel well, but had met him a few times, such as at a concert they met, went to with friends. I didn't see him personally as a bad person, but there was just something off about him to me, she said. Yeah, like a 26-year-old hanging out with a bunch of, like, high school students at a concert. Yeah, that, there's something off about that. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, Rosa Smock and her twin sister, Anna Smock, also um, Megan's friend, said that Megan talked to both of them about concerns that she was pregnant. Anna Smock said she helped as much as she could, and to her recollection, Megan told her those concerns several times. So, because also Utah... <laughs> Health education, um, sex ed, pretty much is non-existent, uh, or it's the very bare minimum in Utah. So a lot of a lot of kids don't ever get access to that information. Also, parents can waive, you know, like their child's participation in, in any of those classes. So it's a pretty common issue, I think, with adolescents everywhere. But I think, especially in Utah, let a teacher and for Mormon kids, talk to my kids about sex. I can not do that myself. Yeah. 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 So I think that all three of us have had Mormon parents who were not good at <laughs> discussing sex um, information with us, probably. And so I think we can relate to that. My parents were Tom. <laughs> and being pregnant would be awful, right? Do you like really good. Yeah. I think I was asked if I knew where babies come from, and I said yes. And I think that was the end of that. That was the end of it. Part. It's like, thank God. <laughs> like, oh, God, good. <laughs> Talk <laughs> over. I'm out. Yeah. No, my, my parents, yeah, were very, very open. And if I had any questions, I could ask them. But a lot of times they didn't know the answers themselves. So, but that's you know. another thing, right? Like, how can they learn information without it? Like, oh, that's pornographic material. Or like, there's mm -hmm. like such a weird line but, of like yeah. Mormons wanting to like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. was also in Oregon, for, for, so for I got our, actual sex our ed. listeners who might be curious about Mormon attitudes towards sex, they consider it the sin next to murder. There, there's murdering people and then there's fornication and adultery and sexual behavior out of wedlock, even by yourself. Uh, I mean, masturbation isn't second to murder, right? I think it's sexual sin. I, it's it's sexual definitely sin sexual sin. Supposedly next to murder, and uh, yeah, there's probably like Mormon are... theorist debates about that. I mean, because oh. I think a lot of Mormons could think that. But uh, and and then also Megan's cousin Felicia Rodriguez also said that she was told by Tori, uh, Megan's mom, that she found a condom in her home, and she texted her to ask like. 
Like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. I how, found a condom. If she, if she was using condoms, how how was she worried about getting pregnant? Maybe she Is didn't that, know exactly what happened with, like, she's and, Mormon. And also, just because. We just discussed this. <laughs> do you want me to, were, do you want me condom, to repeat but... my entire sex heads curriculum again? Because I'll do it. Oh, the horror stories from BYU. Like, students, the people that got married and had no idea, like, um, what would happen. Yeah, when they, when they got married, I had a friend tell me, "This is off the record. I imagine she'll never listen to this." But <laughs> she told me after she got married, she's like, "Sex is nothing like they show in the movies. <laughs> it is nothing like that." Because she was really excited about sex. Uh, she uh, like no. her first boyfriend. She made out with a ton. She like really was into that. Mm. And then of course she knows her. Um, her husband, now they've been married for a while, but they knew each other for four weeks before they were engaged. And uh, then and then she got married and she's like, it's nothing like that. And did you know that their penis, like, changes? It, like, gets, like, really hard. I really need stuff. to know it more was... about her pre-sex <laughs> ad- like ideas about sex. <laughs> but, yeah, we've kind of gotten off topic. I guess let's get back to it. Okay, we talked about Mormon sex enough. Okay. So, uh, then, after all that tension is building, Kristen finds out that Angel has moved to the Grunwald's household. And she said, it blew my mind that they could somehow find it a good idea to let Angel move into their house. So, she takes it upon herself to call the Grunwalds and spoke to Jerry. Megan's dad, and she wanted to expose the secret of Angel's past. She informed Jerry that Angel was an ex-con and had spent four years in prison. And when he asked why, she told him that Angel had stabbed someone and nearly killed him. So, Jerry finds out that Angel stabbed someone. Megan doesn't actually know why Angel's gone to jail at this point. She just heard from him that he went... And they never really talked about it because he didn't, you know, he's like, I'm a different person and I want to move on with my life. And she just kind of accepted that. Uh. Um, But so Jerry finds out, loses it, goes to confront Megan, asks if she even like knew that he was an ex-con or that he went to jail. And uh, Megan kind of retorts like, Dad, I hate you. Like, you don't even know me and my life and Angel's fine and... Uh, stay out of my business and yeah I know he went to jail I don't even care like that's not who he is anymore you know just the typical 17 year old lashing out my parents don't know anything they don't understand me at all like they're completely wrong you know it's teenager stuff so Angel continued living there and he eventually confessed to Megan because she kind of pushed him at this point to know why he went to jail and he told her that there was a guy who was drinking and getting in his face and wouldn't leave him alone and was kind of threatening him. He thought he might draw a weapon, so he grabbed the closest thing to him, which happened to be a screwdriver, and stabbed the man. Uh, In fact, and this isn't what he told her, but (laughs) from the case, in fact, he was so angry that he stabbed the other man 30 times with the screwdriver and was sentenced to prison for four years for attempted homicide. So, he stabs him a lot of times. He was very angry. Yeah. That's 
That's that'll, that'll an excessive you amount out. of times with a screwdriver. <laughs> that'll. I would need to rest that arm in the morning. <laughs> Thirty uh, times. Geez. Yeah. Is uh yeah. It's hard to make a self defense claim for that. Yeah. So uh, that's that's berserker mode. Yeah. So Megan's friend Callie said that Angel had a hold on Megan. That Megan knew wasn't good, but she went along with it because she loved Angel. And as we said before, you know, I think she just craved that attention and somebody caring about her and calling her like their girl and all that, you know, uh, 17 year olds, you know. If there's but, any 17 year olds who <laughs> listen to this podcast, we actually would like to, love 17 year olds. We, 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 Little we, children. We, we, we're not going to hang out at your house or anything. <laughs> we're not going to be hanging out. I was going to say old, that earlier. Way too old was for that. that. Like- <laughs> I'm not going to help you with math, uh, maybe via Zoom. But if the- you get a little group together. <laughs> I was going to say four years ago, I was 26 and I was uh, working in an after school program with teenagers. And I cannot imagine spending a minute with them off the clock. <laughs> like, why? Yeah. <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> but if you're 17 and listening, you're probably woke and cool. Probably. Um, so we yeah, can, we, you know, we can, be like, we can be like, your, if you want to adopt it aunt and uncle to like, you know, say happy birthday, little Jimmy, then let us know. I, I will put that on the calendar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't be afraid to email us. Even if uh, we just shit on your entire age. Demographic, you know, I know seventeen-year-olds are way cooler. I do remember that. I think I was when I was seventeen. So I was a teenager. I'm just gonna say all of my loathing for seventeen-year-olds is really about my self-loathing for like when I was seventeen and did stupid, stupid shit and didn't think it was (laughs) stupid. (laughs) Like didn't know better. So, uh, but there could be way cooler, more mature, and better decision-making seventeen-year-olds out there. So. Hopefully, you're one of those. <laughs> um, but during... So, uh, okay. So, they're fighting. But Jerry... And Jerry's super pissed about Angel's presence and his background. But he can't get him to leave or kick him out. Because both Megan and Terry like Angel there. And, like, aren't going to get him to leave, you know? So, if... Megan's caught in that center of the conflict where if she said something here, her dad would yell at her. If she said something there, Angel would yell at her. And Megan was stuck in the middle of what her friend Kelly Garrett referred to as a lightning storm that hit on both sides and she just like couldn't get out. So lots of conflict at home. So during one intense altercation, uh, Jerry was confronting Megan while Angel was there, and Jerry slapped Megan across the face. At that point, Angel pulled a gun on him, pointed at him, told him, you've gone too far, um, that nobody can touch his woman. And Megan, the only, like from reports from family members, they think that Angel was ready to pull the trigger at that point even. But he didn't. um, Partially, like, it's hard to say because we weren't there and, you know, a lot of Megan's family might have negative views for Angel, so I don't know how close he was or not. But she stood in between them, and she said, told her dad to get out of the room, told him not to call the cops, and she told him that she would handle it. 
Uh, but then her Jerry leaves and calls the police. So he goes out, calls the police, reports that Angel had attacked him and held a gun in his face. And within an hour, the police show up, which is kind of a long time for calling about a gun. I mean, it said like less than an hour. And I'm like, that's that's a long time for like, like we'll get asking to for it. help. <laughs> you I know. finished my donuts and coffee. Are you, are you sure he's is gonna shoot you how how sure are you does it- yeah like like what the fuck are with police like when like they're always there when you don't need them at all just fucking shit up when you actually maybe could use help like they like they never make anything better just like pretty much don't call the police overall mostly <sighs> but fuck them anyway so the police show up and uh, Megan tells police because they ask her to come out. She tells Angel to leave, like to leave the house. So he goes off because she sees the police are coming. Uh, and she tells him she never saw a gun. Angel wasn't the attacker, that her father was the attacker and slapped her across the face. So Jerry admits that he slapped Megan across the face, but tells police that it was because Angel was screwing with his daughter. She's only 17 years old. And the police promptly arrest Jerry and haul him away. <laughs> However, Jerry is released without being charged. And but like the like the later that night or something, he gets released and isn't charged for anything. Yeah, we could definitely do a whole thing on how ex-convicts are uh, treated, how easy it is for abusers to get out of prison. And not even have, and how hard the justice but, system will like. I'm not, I'm not sure what you're saying there, but I think no. But we're gonna <laughs> keep moving on. <laughs> so <laughs> Jerry's released without being. We do a whole episode on it, though. <laughs> we'll do a whole episode. <laughs> we might as well do it now. <laughs> um, <laughs> tell us how easy it is to be a. X can get away with all the abuse and stuff. No, 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 not both of those things. Okay, so there's separate topics. One is that <laughs> X cons are usually not the violent people that everyone puts them as. Like they, they, they're okay. U- that's different than you just said. I think, but yeah. So that that would be a whole topic on uh on that. And also a different topic would be the dad getting out of jail like the next night. Like you, what you send your abuser to jail. Exactly. Police are good for nothing. Yeah. They fuck shit up all the time. And the justice system does too. It's a problem Uh, because it's just so fucking arbitrary, but also based on like such strict rules that are, just fabricated by tradition and not by any sense of actual logic or so it's very frustrating yes. or even facts like or I, facts. Was, I served on a jury and i was like can we get uh the the transcript of what they wrote i saw that lady typing over there can i get that because i forgot a part <laughs> you would ask and that. i would like justice and they were like no you don't have that it's like well the, why the fuck is she <laughs> typing it like I'm the one deciding this case. Mr. Lawyer's not doing that. I is Mr. Lawyer was not great in that case. And uh yeah, I was busy trying to 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 help people and I could not get the like you just have to remember all of it. And there's one lady who's just anyway. 
<laughs> okay, so <laughs> Jerry, so Jerry gets released and not charged, but he doesn't, for obvious reasons, want to go back to the house where Angel is living. Right? He's afraid something might happen. Um, he's pretty scared. It seems like at this point, and just also just frustrated that he can't do anything about it. So he moves in with his mother, um, leaving the household. Uh, at that point, it seems like, you know, it's hard to know what happened with Megan and Angel and their relationship at that point, but it seems like she started having some concerns herself, um, and her mother wanted to move. Anyway, it comes up to this very, the big day where the, everything goes down. Dying for love. What day is this? It is January 30th, 2014. It's the day that Megan and her mother were moving to St. George. And Megan's uncle, James Mays, was helping them out. According to Mays, the last time that he saw his niece and Garcia Rogue, Angel, together, was when they were leaving the house that morning. They told Mays that they were going to get people to help them move. Megan was kind of upset and Angel was in a big hurry, he said. But they told him that they were getting help and left the house. Uh, they had kind of, you know, been fighting, it seems like. And I I think it's partially because she was moving to St. George. And I think they were, she was torn about, like, whether, what that would mean. And if it meant the end of their relationship or... If she was going to leave her mother or what was going to happen. But um, so they drove around and reportedly also Angel had found out like the day before that there was a warrant for his arrest issued. And it was unclear about what that warrant was for. But later, um, Megan's lawyer indicates that it was because he was going to be under investigation for the molestation of an underage girl big surprise and that came from a report jerry made or um that came from that came from uh we don't know i don't even know if it was megan it just Mm. was about an underage girl is what megan's lawyer was suggesting in court at least uh so uh he finds out he has an a warrant as well so he's kind of freaked out uh, and they drive off. There's no reason that we know of as to how they ended up here, but they're arguing, having emotional conversation. Megan pulls off to the side of the road because she's upset and so that they can talk on State Route 73 near Eagle Mountain, Utah. And it's at this point that things start really getting out of hand. Because as they're sitting on the side of the road at 12.45 p.m., an officer, Corey Wright of the Utah County Sheriff's Department, saw the pickup truck on the side of the road and pulled up behind them to check out the situation. He first came to Megan's window on the driver's side of the vehicle. Reportedly, he could tell that she'd been crying or was upset, and he asked if she was okay. And she said yes, she was that she was all right, that everything was fine. Also, that their vehicle was running, um, that she just, they were sitting on the side of the road to talk. Then, uh, Ride asked for identification. He, so Megan handed him her driver's license, 
But he also asked for Angel's identification. And Angel at first said he didn't have it on him. So Ride asked him for a name. And uh, Angel offered a fake name. And you said that Megan was on the passenger side or the driver's side? She was driving. She was driving at this point. So, um, so Angel gives the fake name to Ride, who walks back to his patrol car and looks up the information. He can't find a match for the name that Angel gave him. So he goes back to the vehicle, but this time he goes onto the um, passenger side. So he walks up to Angel's window, hands Megan her license over Angel, and is like, hey, I need more identification. So I need your birth date and your full name and writes some things down that Angel tells him and heads back to his patrol car. And Angel opens the, as Corey Red gets in to check the information again, Angel opens the rear window of the pickup truck. Um, it's a two-seater pickup truck. So opens the rear window, takes out his handgun, and then shoots Corey Ride, like, through his window, like, through the windshield. And um, shoots, like, four or five times and then tells Megan to drive. And they drive off. So they leave and drive away. But less than 30 minutes later, uh, Ride's body's discovered. By other officers and they don't know what happened but because um the last vehicle listed in his like uh his like you know computer. comments computer that um he stopped was a toyota tundra driven by megan grunwald so they don't know what happened except for they know they're looking for that truck and they distribute like an all point bulletin to the whole state so all of the departments are on a lookout for like this Toyota Tundra driven by Megan Megan's truck is spotted a short while later and Angel once again shoots out the rear window at a patrol car in pursuit and he strikes Deputy Sherwood in the head um, and his car stops so although this deputy was struck in the head he does survive he goes to the hospital and he makes a Pretty much a full recovery. I'm sure that there are some, like, you know, um, long-lasting impacts. But but overall, like, I think goes back to his job and leads a pretty normal life. But, uh, and they, so they've crossed, like, county lines at this point, And they're just driving. And they finally get stopped, um, like, an hour later with spike strips off of an exit near Nephi, Utah. Megan and Angel jump out of the truck at this point, and they flag down a minivan uh, that was driven by a woman, and I think she was pregnant and she had a baby in the car. But they, like, um, get her to take her baby, and she leaves. They jump in the van and keep driving. But they drive less than a mile in this new vehicle before they hit more police spikes. And they veer off the road and are surrounded by police pretty much instantly at that point because they were in pursuit. But it's reported that at this point, like, Angel pretty much knew it was his last stand. He knew he expected to die. Um, he and Megan both, like, exit the vehicle at one point and Angel gets shot quickly. Um, but Megan dropped to the ground as she got out of the vehicle and is on the ground, and 
I know from one report, she said, like, she screams, like, he shot in the fucking head. Like, stop shooting. Because they continued to shoot. And she was, like, screaming, like, to stop. And she said that was the time she got angry. <laughs> like, because overall in her testament, which was really sad. Like, I'm not going to read a ton of her testimony. I read a little bit. But it seems like she was, like, you know, really trying to say, like, oh, yeah, like, this officer read he was really nice. He asked me if I was okay. Like, trying to, like, I don't know. Say, you know, because she's just, she's a 17 year old girl who's like probably never had a run in with the law before. And, uh, and she said the time that she actually got angry was like when they were trying to like be shooting at her, her too. Um, and, uh, but in, in the meantime, like Angel tried to shoot at a couple of people, but they, they, they weren't hit and they were fine. And, uh, so Angel was still taken into custody, but he was told, uh, apparently like his last words are close to them. Like as he was getting arrested are, aren't you going to let me kiss my girl with my last dying breath? <laughs> words to go out by, I guess. Right. <laughs> this guy, he's, he seems a little reckless, a little passionate and, uh, I don't know if he, how he saw himself, but it seems like seems like he was having a romantic view of his own death. Yeah, they were going out like Bonnie and Clyde, and I think he was trying to build it up that way, like to himself. And yeah, I don't know. He was just, um, but he was taken to the hospital at that point, and then he passed away the next day um, due to his injuries, with just a few witnesses there. I wonder. Did he ever? Make I a wonder statement? if. I mean. He, he killed a cop, so I wonder if he could have survived, honestly. Yeah, that's, that's a question. Yeah. I didn't look at, a lot into it, but if he survived till the next day, it seems like often like those inevitable deaths are going to happen pretty immediately if they get to a hospital. I mean, you know, things happen, but still, it's just a question. I don't know. Um, which is unlike Corey Ride, who was the the cop that was shot and killed. Um, he, on the other hand, he he had been a police officer forever. Like according to his wife, she basically said that like when she talked to him about why he wanted to be a police officer, he said like it was just like what he always wanted to be from the time that he he was three years old he was born to be a cop it was in his blood like he was destined to be there and he and his family were also mormon just fyi because his wife uh, i mean i have a lot of sympathy for someone who loses someone they love unexpectedly and tragically but um I'll get into a little bit more, but basically Nanette is his wife's name, his widow's name now, Nanette Ride, and she said that she got a call from her friend at 4.15 that Corey had been shot and killed, but she said at that point she felt Corey's hand on her heart telling her, don't be angry, Nan, don't be angry, which she doesn't really succeed at doing, like, I'll tell you about it, but um, she says this like it's a beautiful thing, and that she's like, I know we're married for eternity and our family is, 
you know, going to be there. And he's, he's always going to be there for us. And uh, she went on to do a bunch of advocacy on behalf of police officers. She started a couple of foundations and um, some stuff. So, but when she also reported that three days before the shooting, Corey like knew something was going to happen, that he was acting super anxious. He was like pulling at his hair and like couldn't sleep and was just very restless. I mean, another thing about Mormon <laughs> families, right? Is, signs and <laughs> yeah, like you never know when you're actually going to have something bad happen to you. So you feel like you're going to have something bad to you. Because you you have to, but listen then if to it the, doesn't, the you just Spirit, move on. Right? Which it, is which is in you, and so yeah, you you've got to listen to all these feelings all the time. But then if something bad does happen, then it validates itself. Validates everything, yeah. Because he could have just been anxious and depressed about you know anything. He's a cop. like life, like yeah. whatever you know. But it's a state of being. <laughs> she also said that in the days before the tragedy. Her husband made her promise to fall in love and live a happy life when he died. He didn't say if. He said when, she said. And she kept her promise because in 2017, uh, she married Brad Zeman, a Utah Highway Patrol officer from Spanish Fork. They started chatting on Facebook and dated for nearly three years, which is pretty much from the time her husband died. So she dated him for three years from pretty much the moment her husband died. And then they got married. But, you know, I hope whatever with them. Uh, she started the Blue Haven Foundation and the Utah Code 4 Foundation to help surviving spouses of law enforcement who have died in the line of duty. Okay, we need to talk about that for a second. Which I want to just say that, like, the year that this was written, and I'm, I'm not sure what what month it was, but they said, like, you know, like, 39 officers died in the line of duty last year. And there have been 12 so far this year. <laughs> they were talking about nationally? Yes, that nationally. Right. Nationally. And they managed to kill about 1,500 a year? How many? Oh, yeah. 1,000 plus for sure. But Corona is not a big deal. Like, I don't think that's terribly relevant, Aaron. But, um, yeah, there, it's, uh, in, in case you don't know, there, um, police the discrepancy. Officers, police officers not even on the top 10 list of most dangerous jobs. How many it's UPS all, drivers and UPS workers died? I don't know if delivery the, drivers on it, but there's definitely there's deaths uh, every year at UPS. Can you imagine just 12? Well, and a big big part of her a big part of her advocacy was um is like armored police cars because her husband was shot through the window and she wants to protect all the of the officers so like wanted like more more secure police cruisers so that they couldn't be shot through the windows. That's the problem. And, um, um yeah, no, yeah. they, uh, yeah. And those, those deaths as, as they usually count them, whatever, tw 20, whatever this year, 12, whatever last year, uh, those are like deaths in the line of duty. But, um, most of those are accidents, heart car accidents and high speed chases, which really should never take place. <laughs> or just, like um, being cops, shot by another cop. The uh, the odds that um, someone else is going to get hurt or injured in a high speed chase is just so exponential. Like it's almost never worth it to have a high speed chase. And you know, you just but it's exciting. Later. That's why they're cops. That's why they're there, right? For the excitement, the adrenaline, the the the, the power. 
So one oh, other wait, thing. Wait, wait, so, sorry. Oh, uh, yeah, the, go uh, ahead. Go the, ahead. Yeah, that list of, um, of Salt Lake Police Department officers killed in the line of duty. There was 30-something in the last, like, 150 years. Like, since the beginning of Utah as a state? I read through the whole list, and you had to go back to, like, 1860 to get to the, the first one. Um, but uh, it, it took a while before you found one that uh, – was killed intentionally, and they were definitely a minority on. The I mean, list. it like, was like in ninety something or eighty wagon something accident. It was like a while ago. <laughs> it was was like that. Yeah. Like a while. That was the first one. Yeah, uh, it was a wagon accident. <laughs> some some very old timey t- way to t- tie on the road. Oh no, the sheriff is squashed. <laughs> it's a duel. <laughs> yeah, duels. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like, and honestly. Thousands of people turned out for Corey Ride's funeral. So I'm not surprised that you heard about it, Nick. Like, it was a big event. Like, thousands of people turned out for it. And uh, the, even a, a, a local highway was renamed after Corey Ride after this event as well. Like, uh, yeah, he, 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 he got, he got, he got a lot. Um, so we're at the point where Angel's died in the hospital. Megan's been in jail. Um, the rides have grieved, have their parade and their procession and get a freeway named after them. And now they're in court. Um, what was Megan charged with? Um, she was, she had, she was facing 12 charges and, uh, she, so I'm going to go into that cause now we're okay. at court. So Megan goes to court like about a year, a year and a half later, almost. So she's already served she, 526 days. Yeah. She was in jail the whole time. The whole time. Was she, she wasn't granted bail? No. I mean, she might have been, but her family probably couldn't afford it. I doubt it because it was, um, she was implicated in cops, yeah, p- cops dying. So, um, but so court comes and there's the day where they have testimony from family and friends of Megan and Angel. Uh, Tori's mother takes the stand. But it causes some problems. It doesn't. It seems like it really doesn't help Megan's case much. One, Tori did not want to be there. She was subpoenaed to come to testify, and I. Uh, so is is Tori her mother? It, Tori's her mother. Okay. But it's understandable because what well, when she gets called to the stand, she, um, as you remember, that due to that near fatal car accident, she survived. That she had brain damage and memory problems. She also said that her doctors told her she had early stages of Alzheimer's t- disease and dementia. Uh, so he she gets onto the stand, and uh, many statements that are made by the prosecution seem to confuse her, and she couldn't recall a lot of the things that she told police previously. Uh, also, you know, her like the event was nearly a year and a half before, so she contradicts herself. She contradicts some things. Um, she seems confused. She told Pede who was the lead prosecutor, that Angel, the man who shot and killed uh, Corey Ride, was not living with them, but living down the street. She said she didn't remember her daughter telling her that they had engaged in sexual intercourse. And Pete asked Tori if she was protecting her daughter and not being entirely forthcoming in her testimony. But Tori replied that she didn't remember the details but Garcia would come to the Grunwald's home to help Megan with her homework. 
Pete also asked her why she kept looking at Megan during her testimony and asked if she was looking for direction. She responded, I'm looking at her because she's my beautiful daughter. And it's likely she hadn't seen her really for a year, a year, more than a year, you know, her 17 year old. Oh my God. So they really tried to discredit a lot of Megan's case due to her mom's testimony or um, contradictions. Uh, but, you know, like I said, it's kind of understandable that she didn't have a very, co- like, co- co- coherent, cohesive, coherent yeah. like, testimony. I wonder what her role in the trial is supposed to be. Like, I can only she see, She was like, subpoenaed by the prosecution. Yeah. Yeah. To, I guess, just, like, talk about the relationship and Megan and, yeah. Okay. Megan's relationship with Angel. She was more of a character witness because she didn't see any of the events of the crime. Yeah. Um, but she did know about Angel's past. She did admit that she knew that he was no angel. She told Pete, (laughs) as I said, she would say, um, Pete asked her if he offered to beat the shit out of Jerry, her husband. And she replied, no, but if he did, I would have said, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Told you she was a little spicy. Oh my goodness. (laughs) She's very uh cranky a lot i think and it was just like yeah like he deserved to get the shit beat out of him oh. um because they by this time they were in the midst of a divorce and she also said that terry like megan's father had beat megan like growing up and we already know that he'd slapped the, her face and um that there had been domestic um like there was a, a history like police history of like domestic disturbances at the house so we wow. know things are like happen but uh, she did say that she and Megan had a very close relationship and that she normally would call Megan several times a day to ask her um, to help her remember things or if she needed to check about things. So I'm sure her life was completely turned upside down when her support was no longer there as well, like Megan not being there to call and ask um, about things or help her remember things. I made her grow up too fast, Tori said. She's a beautiful, innocent, sweet, caring daughter. So, like, yeah, pretty heartbreaking there. But uh, when when Angel's brother, Gustavo Garcia Huarguay, took the stand, he testified that Megan Grumwald was not his brother's only girlfriend, and he doubted that the two would last very long. He also indicated that another one of Angel's girlfriends was pregnant or had been pregnant with Angel's child at the time. I'm not sure if, like, it must have been, like, at the time of the spree, but, uh, and then later it was clarified that it seems like he wasn't, I don't know, I don't know why, but I, I saw from another report from the court that his brother said that, like, he'd had three girlfriends since he was out of prison. So I don't know if he meant like at the same time he had multiple girlfriends or if like he just was like, he's going through girls. He's not serious about people. He just kind of does this. How long was their whole relationship? Because she was 17. from the. I mean, it was six months. Okay. It was from August to January 30th. So yeah, about, about six months. A little bit like less than that, like five months, four. Was that from... August through January. It was like the end of January. So yeah, five months. So um, 
And there were also co-workers from the meat packing plant where I guess Megan got a job at some point as well, but where Angel worked. And they they were called to testify about her character and her boyfriend's character. And then there was also Megan's school friends, um, at least those that were willing to testify. Apparently, quite a few of them declined to make statements or to testify, but some of them did come to the stand. And uh, Rosa Smock um, said that Megan asked her if she knew at one point, she asked if she knew if anyone could get some ice, um, ice sling for methamphetamine. But Rosa also testified that Megan wanted to move in, move with her boyfriend to Mexico, that he'd given her a promise ring and that she'd never heard of marriage plans, but she did believe that Megan wanted to be with him. However, she also clarified that Megan was not using any drugs as far as she knew. Um, later, she would test for very low amounts of um, methamphetamine or like, I mean, earlier she did test positive for that, but it seems like it was not something she regularly used. And she also said it made her feel sick, but Angel kind of encouraged her, or like had her try it. And there was some paraphernalia in the pickup truck at the, after the scene, but um, it, the information about whether Angel had like use that day or anything was not available either. So yeah, this seems like maybe he was introducing some drugs into her life, but pretty early on. And then uh, Renee Bolin, uh, Megan's grandmother, she also contradicted statements by Tori, uh, Megan's mother, saying that she was well aware of the fact that Megan and Angel were in a relationship. She said that she told her, I want, I, I told her he was nothing but trouble. Bolin said, I told her, do you realize what you're doing? He's 27 and you're 17. She told me, I know, but I want to be with him. And besides, he makes so much money. <laughs> For a 17-year-old, like any adult, right? <laughs> the job <laughs> makes quite a bit of money. But um, other investigators with the Utah County Attorney's Office uh, who investigated Megan Grunwald's phone and Jose Angel Garcia's phone uh, testified in the afternoon as to the nature of their texts and pictures found on both phones. A video from November was shown to the jury showing an affectionate is that poster exchange, but I imagine post exchange <laughs> between the couple. Uh, because basically at this point, all of the prosecution's case rests on proving that Megan loved Angel, that she was willing to cooperate with him, that she was going to do what he um, wanted to do, that she was not compelled in any way, um, and just trying to prove that through, like, proving that they had a relationship. And the defense is arguing that she did what she did because she was in, in the car, car with a with man someone with a gun shot a cop. Yeah. 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 Which seems like a reasonable argument to make. So their whole their whole case depends on them proving that she was in love with Angel, and the seventeen year him. old just became uh, <laughs> yeah, accomplice, devoted like runaway driver or getaway driver, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, with a moment's notice. But yeah, because no even at that point, it seems background. like it would just be like adrenaline, like like we'll get there, but. Uh, <laughs> So then, um, so then, like the next day, Megan took the stand, 
um, in her defense. She, it seems like her testimony was a little scattered. Again, it's been a year and a half. I think she also was trying to say what they wanted to hear, you know, and probably had a lot of complicated feelings and emotions and probably didn't really know a lot of like why she did some things and like what, you know, what happened and how it led to that point. Cause she basically was a normal 17 year old, never had like an adult relationship in her life. And then like meets a guy five months later is like on, has this crazy day where they're running from cops and he's shooting out the window at people and then has been in jail for like, a year and a half. What's her plan, right? Like to to you you turn yourself over to the cops and and just hope that they're well, chill with you they... having driven away <laughs> right? that's from a what crime they're arguing. Scene. Like, yeah, you drive away. You killed a you're in the car with somebody who killed a cop. Like you will be murdered if not jailed if you're anywhere near like as we show with the guy who like <laughs> had his tire blow out and ran over a cop. It's just like... Okay, for those of you who don't know what that means, that one of the incidents of a police officer dying with Salt Lake City Police Department was a man who was driving and his tire blew and his car, like, veered onto the sidewalk and, like, hit a bike cop. And that cop died. So... And they went after him with the full force of the law, uh, being certain that he had intentionally target that cop randomly and, and ran him down. Brought up past drug charges and... Yeah. Uh, well, reactivated. Reactivated. They're it's, always going to bring up past charges for anyone that, you know, they want to, like, smear and, like, you know, like, make look bad, but they reactivated the charges so that they were actually, like, applicable again, too. Yeah. So Just went after him. And uh, so, you know, if you see a cop and he crashes his own drunk ass into a tree, you get the fuck out of there because you do not know who's going to be blamed, but it's probably going to be whoever saw it happen. Like, just get out. <laughs> that is not Run sound away. legal advice. Um, <laughs> uh, <if we laughs> please did, consult well, with well, the, we, just uh, need, the uh, we need to uh, load into one of these sound, sound pads. Oh, we haven't even used any like of the sound advice. pads. <laughs> we haven't. I've been waiting. Okay. Not a doctor at some point. Um, but Grunwald then says, okay, so in her testimony, she talks about like Ride pulling up behind her. And she said that at that point, Angel points the gun toward my head and says, if you don't do what I f- tell you, I'm going to fucking kill you and your fucking family. Grunwald says Angel then stuck the gate gun on the back of, out of the back of the truck's window and shot Ride. He tells me, go, go, go. I asked, can I get out of the car? He said, no, keep driving. Megan also said she had no idea if Ride had been hit or not. The couple headed to Santa Quinn where they were met by Deputy Sherwood. That was the guy who got shot in the head um, during the chase. An angel once again opened up the sliding back window and shot at Sherwood, who was struck at that point. But that became a pretty big case in the prosecution because they used dash cam footage to say like Megan slowed the car down to allow him to shoot out the window at Sherwood and then like turned around to go past him and like she didn't try to run away or get out or like stop driving with a man with a loaded gun who is shooting everyone like I don't who, I don't really understand who but. also knows that he's shooting at people who also have guns like yeah come she, on so after after he shoots at Sherwood um Grunwald said that she again pleaded to Angel to let her go, 
but he said he threatened her family again and again. The chase eventually ended near Nephi, as we said earlier, where he was shot and killed. During the entire chase, Grunwald testified that she was continuously threatened and told if she didn't listen, her and her family would be killed. That's so unbelievable. What? A man with a gun who has killed multiple people and was in jail for, like, attempted murder. And held a gun on her dad earlier that day. Yeah. Like, what? We already know he pulls the gun on people. We already know that he's willing to shoot it. Like, also that he, like, was abusive and, like, manipulative. And that he argued with, like, that he yelled at Megan, you know, like... If she said one thing to her dad or like, you know, like all of that contention at home, we know he had those issues. Oh, I, so the I, fact I that the jury her, feels I, like I'm it's sure. like unbelievable that he would be threatening her in this situation. No, and she no, would be she was scared. just in love. She just wanted to, <laughs> I, I, to shoot cops and drive through the Utah absurd. streets. Uh, I, I didn't ask earlier, but she is being charged as an adult here. <laughs> um, yes, but no. Like, so she's 18 at this point. And, like, um, like when we get to her sentence, like, I'll, I'll explain. But, so the defense is trying to show jurors that she's a young woman who was caught up in an awful crime against her will. So prosecutors say Grumwald was a, but prosecutors are saying that she was a willing participant doing everything she could to help her boyfriend. Just because she loved him. <laughs> And uh, the defense attorney, Dean Zabriskie, countered and and tried to show that Megan was compelled, like, to follow Angel and arguing who's in control, the guy with the gun, even raising his voice and pointing a disarmed pellet gun at the jurors as he made this point. Does this make your heartbeat go up? He asked. You should have brought a real gun in before. <laughs> they just let him do you should that. Have just like yeah. let a shot a real gun and point just like... a realistic looking gun at the jury. <laughs> just shoot it in the air and just see how many I don't people know. scatter. I, I, I'm sure they probably. Like, told why are you running disarmed? away? I love you. What? But <laughs> is it, 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 does she have? Great lawyers or the worst lawyers? <laughs> I can't tell. I mean, I think her lawyers are pretty solid. It seems like, like, the one I saw, he was older. I mean, I think he's been in law for a while, and they're, like, at a point, like, in her case where it's still I'm, ongoing at this point, which I'll explain. Yeah, I, 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 I'm with him. That pointing. is a completely reasonable point but, to make. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm just imagining him being like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's what he was trying to do because his big argument was like, she's 17 years old. She's a child. Someone is there with a gun. She's driving. She never shoots the gun. She never touches it, picks it up, it's threatens like officers into the or doing anything. Either. She was already yeah. in the driver's spot when yeah. he had the gun. And I think he was just like, this is ridiculous. Like, really? And uh, he also pointed to the evidence that had been provided by the prosecutors, like the love letters, the promise ring, the birthday cards, and arguing that, in fact, it proved that she was a victim, an underage girl who legally couldn't consent to the relationship. And, however, the prosecutors countered that just because Grunwald didn't have the ability to consent to sex had no bearing on whether she could conspire in the crime. And that she was still culpable. 
but also I doubt he like is probably just like the talking so, to the mic. It was probably just the. It's probably not like he just flashed the gun out and like at the. He at pointed the it at the jurors. Yeah, but it's an old. It's an old man lawyer pointing thing, and it just doesn't have the same oomph to it as just like pulling well, one also, out and like aiming it at like or taking one of them hostage. Well, of course, it's different than if you're I mean, at it with an individual who has an actual loaded gun and who has made like used it and been threatening yeah but the point he was like i think when people see guns like we do like you know react to that we have like a conditioned response to like assume that they could be dangerous or violent and especially with a gun pointed at you even yeah like you never point guns at people and right you know but in a lawyer when you're like watching a lawyer they do all kinds of stuff that you're just like this is a stage play basically so kind it, of. It I, I've been pretty bored whenever I've gone to court, honestly. There hasn't been any of that shit, but <sighs> I guess this is a jury trial and not just, you know, like some civil case or something. Yeah. But I just I just don't think you could get you should like I just don't know if the heart <laughs> pounding would happen from an old man showing a gun to a bunch of jurors. But also you can't just think- grab a juror from by the hair and like hold a gun <laughs> to them. Yeah, <laughs> no. Just you the feel your heart that... pounding? Do you want to run away? <laughs> we were already, like, in shock that he used an unloaded, like, ballot gun. So the fact, like... I'm saying he didn't go far enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we need to make each one of those jurors feel the terror that Megan Grunwald probably felt sitting next to a man with a loaded gun, unafraid to use it. Yeah. So every one of them should be in that situation. Yeah. So they can like really empathize yeah, with that. Yeah, because apparently it didn't work. Like, <laughs> spoilers. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's hard because it's like going against the police, you know, and, and Angel's dead. So they can't like charge him. So like, which was another point her lawyer made, like if Angel had survived and he made it to this point, like Megan would not be facing all of the charges that she was facing as like the sole survivor of the situation because they needed somebody to blame, like somebody to take accountability for the families (laughs) who, you know, like needed justice. But so they pick this 17 year old girl who was a victim who was abused by her boyfriend, who is, like, in this horrible situation, and she's the one who needs to take the fall. And that's what justice means to them. But um, he goes on to say that, like, we... Like, he also argued that the one-size-fits-all appearance of law was wrong. It disregards unique circumstances and he detailed a lot of examples of Grunwald's character and her family background, saying we don't offer her situation to distract from the horror that uh, they and their families have been exposed to, um, referring to Ride and Sherwood. But by the same token, as I read through the material that was submitted to the court, it appears to me that there was a singular disregard to the fact that she too was a human being. And, um, yeah, I think that's pretty clear. Like, they don't look at her as a 17-year-old girl who was stuck in a horrifying situation out of the blue. No expectation of what might happen. Like, probably felt like a dream. Like, you know, just like a fucking bad dream, I can imagine. So there's nine days of trial. 
and arguments that are made on both sides. Um, and then the arguments finish and they close the trial and the jury deliberates for about 11 hours. The jury was made up of six women and two men and they found Megan Grunwald guilty of aggravated murder and 10 other charges. In fact, the, uh, she was found guilty of every charge except for one, which was the attempted aggravated murder involving shots fired at UHP trooper Jeff Blanken, Blankenage, Blankenagel. So she, she wasn't Blankenage. charged with accessory to attempted murder? She was charged with attempted murder. Yeah, I think that was the most serious charge was, no, like the most serious charge was aggravated murder. And then 10 other for, charges. For Cody, right? Um, For Co- Corey, yeah. Corey, right. Yeah, so that's wild. I didn't know you could be charged like that without pulling the trigger. You can yeah, be just next to the guy who suddenly decides to do it. Yep. And she... As if she was planning on it, but like beforehand? Yeah. Because they, they were saying that because she loved him, that she was willing to conspire to do crime with him. Like, yeah, maybe and at, went the, along maybe with at it. the moment he does crime, which is when he pulls the trigger, but that's when he commits murder. What is she doing except sitting beside him? Yeah, exactly. But... But that's the way it happened. She she that's got charged with amazing. this, and 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 then from ranging from felonies down to like misdemeanor, also for robbery for hijacking that minivan, um, which they also claimed was like a, a big part of what she did because she helped flag down the minivan so that they stopped. So that was another point of the prosecution. Did that person testify? Um, I'm not sure if they took the stand. I did see a statement by her later, but it I I, I kind of. When I went back to type this all up, I didn't like run across it as again, and so I didn't include it. But um, yeah, I, 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 I think she was mostly just saying she was sorry to the rides for experiencing a death in their family and stuff. So it wasn't super relevant to her experience. But uh, yeah, so um, as soon as they. And and uh, her sentence, or when they well, when they find her guilty, uh, Terry Grunwald's mom erupts in distress, and she was escorted from the courtroom, shouting as she left, "She's innocent, and that whole family can go to hell." <laughs> right, good old mom. <laughs> but Officer Sherwood stated afterwards. It shows that if you make bad choices and hang out with bad people, there are going to be consequences for it. My oh family my God, and I out of primary. and the rides are grateful to have this in the past so that we can move on and figure out the new us and be normal. Once you start hanging with bad friends, next thing you know, you're shooting cops. <laughs> and the 18-year-old Megan Grunwald was sentenced to 30 years to life in prison with a chance of parole. And because she was sentenced, I mean, like, as an adult, like, you know, she was she was tried as an adult, but also she, because she was a minor when the incident occurred, she was safe from the death penalty. Wow. Yeah. So she didn't receive the death penalty, but she did <laughs> receive it. Like, I guess it was 25 years for all the aggravated, like, assaults and stuff, and a five-year for, like, the robbery like the van and 
So she's in the Draper prison now? Yes, she is. And uh, has been there for, you know, close to five years. You know, like, I guess more than five years. When is she eligible for parole? Uh, I didn't see that specifically. But um, also in the courtroom, Nanette Ride, widow, uh, made a statement to Megan. And was like, my husband asked you three times if you were okay. You could have just looked at him and he would have known. She she did. She she looked at him. What? And, uh. and, and he... <laughs> also, why... I don't really get that. Wish we could go back in time and, like, read her brain signals. <laughs> and and uh, she... Through her telepathic uh, broadcast. But then also... That Cody Wright was supposed to receive. Um... But she also said to Grunwald, while addressing Judge Gerald McDade as well, he would have taken a bullet for you, but instead he took two for you, not knowing he would get them. <laughs> he he would have... He would have taken a bullet for you. He would have you. given his life in defense of you, but instead... He took two... But it wasn't in defense of you. <laughs> I don't like, but you could have jumped out of the car and hid behind him. I'm sure it sounded earlier. very profound when she wrote it that morning. You know, Grunwald offered a written apology statement that was read to the judge. And she said, it's hard for me to ask for forgiveness when I don't know if I can forgive myself. I'm very sorry. I regret my actions. Uh, because they really pushed on. Why didn't you try to run away? Why didn't you get out of the car? Why did it like had ever any like if Angel Angel seems like he was a pretty good shot. He shot people through the car windows and stuff like like I mean, how how do they think she could get away without risking her life if he has a gun on her? Like that that's pretty absurd. But um Nanette Ride also said that she for, had forgiven Grunwald and she also understood what it was like to experience abusive relationships, admitting that her marriage previous to Sergeant Ride was abusive. She also said she believed that Sergeant Ride had forgiven Grunwald as well. And Nanette, she continued saying that, um, like as I said earlier, that the voice of her husband was telling her, whatever you do, don't be mad. And she told Grunwald, you are forgiven and I hope, sweet girl, that you can forgive yourself. Uh, Kathy So Ride, why does she need to be in prison? Exactly. Like, so why are you so happy that she has a sentence? Like, she's she also expressed that, like, you know, I understand, but, like, you have consequences. Like, Sergeant Ride's mother also wrote about her experience, and she said that her experience as a mother and an educator taught her that young people make mistakes. She is young. But by law, she must now pay the penalty for those actions. I believe 25 years with the possibility of parole is an appropriate sentence. She said, I also believe in second chances. So members of the Ride family, including Nanette, said that they plan to attend Grunwald's parole hearings to see if she truly re rehabilitates. Are they expecting her to say more than sorry? Like... I don't know how they think they can judge whether she's truly rehabilitated or not, or like what she needed to rehabilitate from like a traumatic childhood and an abusive relationship. 
Like, I, I, I don't understand what that means. Like, they're all about forgiveness and second chances, but also think that an 18-year-old should spend all of her life in prison? Like, that seems kind of um, ridiculous. Kind of ridiculous, yeah. Um, yeah, this is, this is just shocking. That's just a... But, um, so this is where I'd, we might need to cut this part out just to like okay. say, but this was kind of interesting because as I was doing research, I also found some mentions of Utah against police brutality. Really? So, uh, apparently at one of our first events, right, um, there was a moment where we were reciting victims of police brutality's names and like saying like, never forget. Um, with each of the names, and we said Jose Angel uh, Garcia Uruguay, and then the news went and talked to Ride and was like, "Did you know that at this memorial they uh said your husband's killer's name and never forget to get her comments and reactions." And she said, this is not a good man. And they're saying his name. How dare they? <laughs> um, but at Utahns, which they always say Utahns, we tell them every time it's Utah against police brutality. Did, did, but Do they contact UAPB to get a statement? Yes. So at Utahns against police brutality rally um, in the week, they said the name in a memorial. A memoriam, followed by a chant from the crowd, never forget. Uh, <clears throat> again, Ride says, he ambushed my husband and murdered him and then shot Deputy Greg Sherwood and changed his life forever. And that she was really upset to learn what happened at the rally. I am disgusted. I was shocked that anyone would even speak that name again. He did horrible things that day. She... But she's sympathetic for family members of victims killed in unjustified shootings. But that was not the case in her husband's killer. I completely empathize with someone who had an officer shoot and kill their loved one. They're in pain. They're grieving. I get that, she said. Another name read at the rally was someone who shot and injured Salt Lake police officer Mo Tifisi and Dan Tuller, um, which was Christopher Leo Knight. And uh, she just said, you have a duty to do your due diligence and you need to find out the story behind each name before you even speak that because how dare you? Um, but an events organizer, when contacted for comment, at first declined an interview request on Friday. Um, earlier in the week, though, uh, she told KSL News Radio that... The woman who called, who said the names was not a member of Utah Against Police Brutality and that they were not familiar with all the names on the list. We did not ask her for a prepared speech. She wasn't part of Utah Against Police Brutality. It was a relative of Dylan Taylor who, in her speech, decided that, uh, that she wanted to speak names. And... We probably had like 10 to 15 speakers. We gave them a platform to speak. I don't think it's right to criticize the organization in itself for a list she chose to read off. 
that Carmen was by Carly. <laughs> Did she just get it from like the internet? Like, probably, I feel probably like just from like just, killed by police. Yeah, killed or, by police. Because we can. And you know what? Like people who are bad can still like their names can still be spoken. They can still be loved by like people like. He never had a chance to go to trial and, like, face accountability for his actions. But if he did, like, he could, you know, like, human lives are human lives. Like, yeah, I, uh, yeah, <laughs> mix, mix all those mixed feelings about it, right? Yeah. And it was, like, a family member of Dylan Taylor who was killed by police, who was grieving. It was fairly recent for them, I believe. And, you know, it was, like... They have a right to say what they're going to say, too. And I also mostly think it was, like, pretty shitty of, like, this news. It's just Deseret News published the story. To, like, go and try to, to like, ride D- over D- one name out of, like, 20. Deseret News is owned by the Mormon Church, by the way. <laughs> it's one of our two uh, newspapers. It's a major mm-hmm. statewide newspaper. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, that was uh, that was in 2016. But I just thought it was interesting and was like, I kind of remember that happening, but also just don't remember the details. And Yeah, I've said so many names that I'm just like, I don't know where those are going to Stop shooting so many people. Then we can research, like, who is, uh, like, like okay and who's not. Okay, like, just stop killing police. Or, like, please stop killing people and we won't have to, like, deal with this shit. Do you know how many they've killed this year? Oh, this year, like in Utah? Yeah. Or, um, I mean, I can pull it up on my spreadsheet. I, I need to add a couple. but I can't keep up with names. It's hard, yeah. like every month. I mean, we have a calling going on on Friday for a victim. So, I mean, like, it happens pretty regularly throughout the state. Um, and that's not including uh, uh, jail, you know, and prisons where... We have the highest death toll of anywhere in the nation, right? Um, there have been, like, years that we've had, like, the highest rate of, like, like incarcerated persons' deaths in the nation. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind it of wild. it shows how, um, like, this culture of cop worship, that cops are always to be respected and lauded and never questioned, and the greatest crime possible is murder of a policeman because their lives are, are so much more valuable than the rest of us that, like, this one name can, like, resonate for years exactly. and be used for propaganda, um, probably invoked every time they, you know, they want a budget raise to um, give the SWAT team rocket launchers. They can use it to attack activists and organizers working to, to hold police accountable. Like obviously, the greatest victim is the teenager who is going to live half her life in prison because she was in the wrong car at the wrong time. And but- like, yeah, just like that cop worship and that like it's so important when one of them dies. Like, well, how many of the cops that were killed too, or like died of accidents and things, like have done horrible things that we'll never know about, will never be publicized because, like, the whole worship around... Their wives. Yeah, the whole worship around them as an officer is now going to be, like, the only thing you hear. Whereas, like, if they shoot someone, any past criminal record, any kind of misconduct, any kind of anything they're going to, like, bring to the forefront, they're going to rehash, they're going to try to, like, 
push it all forward so it makes it seem more justifiable that the cops shot someone who was unarmed. So, but Groundhog's case isn't over. On Friday, February 21st, 2020, this year, um, Utah Supreme Court Judge Matthew Durant issued the ruling on Friday, on that Friday, saying that Grunwald was improperly convicted in Ride's death in 2014. And this is, has been kind of an ongoing appeal. Like her, her lawyers have been working on it. I, I don't know all of the process, um, but it was just approved at this point. Um, but, uh, she wasn't accused of firing the gun that killed the sheriff's deputy. Um, but accomplices can be considered responsible under the state law. So that's why she received those charges as an accomplice. There's been cases recently where um, somebody was charged for a cop's de- – or no, not for a cop's death, for the death of their friend who the cop killed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I they were committing that. a crime at a time. And they were also minors, right? Like 17 Minors, or yeah. They were um, apparently involved in a bur- burglary and the cops showed up, shot a kid. And the other kid got charged with it, uh, yeah. with the murder of his friend. Um, yeah. It's not, uh, you know, it's it's never a murder um, when the the cop is the one being considered for charges. Yeah, no. But uh, it, it, it's a murder when they pull the trigger and they, there's some weird legal loophole that allows them to charge someone else for it. Um, but kind of interestingly for Utah as well, <laughs> because well, what do you, okay, like off the top of your head, what is like the first thing that outside of after Mormons that people say to you when you say you're from Utah or talk polygamy. about Utah? Exactly. Polygamy. So um, her lawyers are pulling from a case um, that uh, has to do with like Warren Jeffs and his polygamous sect because he was found guilty of being a, an accomplice in the rape of an underage girl because he married, he performed the marriage ceremony um, for this underage girl. But then he was, uh, the Su- Utah Supreme Court tossed out the verdict because the faulty jury instructions. And her lawyers are arguing that the jury did not receive adequate instruction as to what the like role of an accomplice would be and that they um, were misinformed and like not adequately prepped for the trial. Uh, this is an appeal their lawyers are making mm-hmm. and they're citing the Warren Jeffs case as precedent. Yeah, from the when the Utah Supreme Court threw out his case because of that same issue. Um, later, Jeffs went to Texas and he was convicted and imprisoned on separate charges, but for those charges that he'd faced in Utah, that they were separate. Um, but so Groundwell's lawyers are arguing that the jury got bad instructions because they were told that they needed to find that she was, uh, they weren't told that they needed to find that she was actively involved in the shootings committed by Jose, um, Angel Garcia, that he was killed um, because the state did not have any evidence, Megan solicited Garcia to commit these crimes. The state attempted to prove it by focusing on Megan's undying love for Garcia and how she would have and did follow him anywhere, her lawyers wrote in court documents filed Tuesday. They said her conviction should be overturned because her lawyer didn't try to fix the faulty jury instructions. 
So I guess she she must have new layers now, maybe. I don't know. I, I, f- I feel like it was the same, but I don't... I, I think there were two, and they were family members, so it could have been, like, one was dad, father, son, or something. I don't know. Um, But... <laughs> So this this news is released, right? And remember Nan, how she forgiven? So forgiven. She forgave Megan. And she just hoped that Megan could forgive herself. So she is informed about this and she takes to Facebook to express her dismay. And she says, "I am so angry, betrayed, and just bawling my eyes out." The Utah Supreme Court, after a year of waiting for a decision, has overturned Corey's murder, and so he gets no justice, and the girl gets a new trial. I'm outraged. I'm numb. This can't be happening. There is no justice, and this sets a dangerous precedent for cop killers. (laughs) Guys, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) And when when asked for comment by local news station, she also made her feelings down. She says, I feel like Corey died and no one cares. I feel like the state is letting someone get away with murdering a cop. This will set a precedent for cop killers again. Our state should be ashamed. There's no justice for what? for cop killers. What what did she say I mean, when it's the just reporter was, honestly. was like, it's, but I thought you forgave her and wanted justice to be dealt by right? the court system. I mean, system, no one says you that. You didn't. Why? I'm confused. Which which one are you? Yeah. No, she forgives, but she doesn't forget it. And she wants her to pay the price and be in jail for all of her life. And also, and she doesn't forgive because... Also, she can't... She, yeah, she couldn't be forgiven. It's been five years. Like... And just the fact that she's like, no one cares... Like, there's a fucking highway named after, like, your <laughs> husband. I think people care. Like, I also saw, like, in multiple, like, police magazines and stuff, like, when I looked for her name, there's spotlights on her foundation and her work and her memorial and memorials for Corey Ride and memorials for this. And, like, there's, like, like more than 1,500 people were at his funeral. There was a fucking parade and a procession and, like, people in uniform and, like, all sorts of bullshit like saying like nobody cares and there's no justice just doesn't quite seem to fit the situation like and she's acting like the the utah supreme court ruled like is cop murder that serious <laughs> like that's the question they were deciding <laughs> i know right like and not like a, a procedural matter of someone getting a fair trial and jurors knowing what they're ruling on yeah <laughs> just, Utah Supreme Court overturned, overturns cop murder. We're cool <laughs> with it. Like, we didn't realize. We didn't realize it was cops. We thought it was Boy Scouts. I don't know. So We're I know. Field. <laughs> so I know that was a long story. I know that it's kind of going to be a pain in the ass to probably try to edit down. Hell yes. But um. But no, that was that is but it, really, really amazing, and I think really revealing of um, a lot of aspects of the work that you do with just UAPB. so many issues. Like mm-hmm. I fight with families, I meet with families and stuff like who have had a loved one unarmed, like killed by police, and like the struggle that they go through for any kind of like dignity, like even just like any kind of like human decency from from like the police from the court system from anyone even just 
being sympathetic, saying I'm sorry. Like, I spoke to one woman, like, you know, last week who said, like, she waited, like, three and a half years to hear, like, an I'm sorry for what happened to your family from, like, any kind of fucking police officer when she's, like, trying to go and advocate for things all the time and talks about her story and, and like, never even just understanding that it's painful to lose someone you love. Like, it's... And and they treat... It's like the police kill someone and treat their family like criminals immediately. Like, the family wants answers and they, like, say, we can't talk about anything. We're not going to talk to you. We're, we refuse to give answers. We're going to... You have to do this or this procedure. And, like, point them in all this bureaucratic... You know, they get, like, enwrapped in all this bureaucratic stuff and, like, have to try to hopefully find even um, a legal team to even tackle a case or to like address it because so many people are afraid to even go against police especially if they um, like our city attorneys or things because they have to work with them regularly and and the police are not afraid to just harass you they don't if you're if you even show up at a meeting you know like how many i wish we could find a statistic or we need like a website or something that just shows, like, have you been harassed by the police after posting something and I mean, about they, them? Yeah, like, like, they treat them like family, like criminals. They, like, act like they're being ridiculous when they're upset, when they're emotional. They, like, follow them in some cases. And uh, the family gets no support from the state after an incident like that unless they fight for years for justice and to, like, receive a settlement. But sometimes, like, that, that doesn't even happen to until like way later so like paying for a funeral is absurd like like they have to use gofundmes and things and collect from the community for an unexpected funeral because it costs thousands of dollars to bury somebody and then they um don't have access to their loved one's belongings sometimes they don't get the story of what happened they don't get to see reports because they're being investigated they don't get answers for so long so like Nanette, yeah, she lost somebody. And, like, that's why I'm like, yeah, we don't want to be all, like, on the widow hate and, like, everything. But also just seeing it from her perspective where she had every single advantage, the court system is going to favor the death of a police officer and try to, like, you know, charge somebody with that. She um, gets settlements where she, like, receives, like, like $100,000 a year and, like, has, like, that... Uh, thin blue line family of like everyone to support her and her family and has like um, access to counseling and resources based on like his death and then wants to <laughs> complain and act like she's the only victim in the world of someone who's like been married to someone who died violently unexpectedly and so it's just it's privilege it's petty for her to be that angry still it's just bullshit overall and um so yeah like it makes it so clear there's like two different justice systems yeah there's the justice system to like funnel people into who are meant to be fucked over and there's the justice system um in defense on the other people on the other side of the power structure Mm -hmm. and like you see with with grand juries grand juries um are uh these incredibly uh um non-transparent uh um unfair um j- j- just 
ridiculously like jury is ridiculous because there's no jury involved. Yeah, but like grand juries are are convened whether to to decide whether to charge people. Ninety nine percent of activists that go in front of them are um, indicted on charges. Ninety nine percent of cops that go in front of them are uh, let go. Yeah, and it's just um, like there's a script. Like if if a cop is brought up on charges, we'll do this little show trial. Um, to declare him innocent before charges ever have to be filed. In either case, that it's it, it's all. Uh, and then they say, "There's nothing we can do. This show. is the rule. This is what we have to like." But there's obviously a tremendous amount of flexibility based on your status, your wealth, your like position in society, and like that impacts everything about your your relationship with the justice system, and it's. Yeah, it's just, it's frustrating and it's fucked up. So, like, while I don't want to belittle somebody's pain, I'm also just, like, get over yourself and look around you. Like, if you really wanted to do advocacy, like, think of other people who have lost someone due to being killed or shot in a violent manner. And you know how you would like justice? Like, consider, like, maybe they would also like to see justice and accountability. Um when their loved ones are murdered, you know? Yeah. It's just... Nobody cares <sighs> about my murdered husband, but, like, could she name any victims of police brutality yeah. in the last 10 years? While saying she sympathizes with them, but, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's bad, too. Yeah. So, yeah, but that's the story. And, I mean, I just... It happened, like, the first year... Like, I mean, 2014 was the first year that I started doing um, political work. And I just... Of course, we were pretty focused on Salt Lake City. Um, this happened, you know, like about an hour south of Salt Lake and in some suburbs. And with the officer being killed and us as a very new organization, I think it was something we weren't quite ready to tackle. We had other local cases that we were focusing on. So like capacity as well. Like, um, so when I was going through that list the last like couple weeks ago, I was just like, what? is this story this is wild and i yeah. just kept reading and was like more information was just yeah and for me like <laughs> having heard his name like my family knowing the officer's family and like having it been brought up uh from my family like because we, we've been involved in this this work against police crimes for a while and so it's, yeah it's a topic that comes up and uh, it's, a, it's a common defense. Oh, these guys' job is just so dangerous. They have to make these split-second decisions. What about Cody Wright? He just stopped someone for a regular traffic stop and just got... Uh, but there's no forgiveness for, like, Megan, who had to make a split-second decision in well, a yeah, very but I was high just, I was just going to say that, like, there, there was just, like, I that that was my, my impression of, of the story from not looking into it. But, like, oh, yeah, that's just, just a wild incident, like... Uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah, he got pulled over for a traffic stop and uh yeah. and uh shot the officer and, and went on a chase I didn't know anything about um his his girlfriend. That and, his girlfriend being, took up all those charges and being a minor mm-hmm. going to jail for half her life for doing something she did with uh basically a gun to her head. That's yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, um, I doubt we'll probably do stories like this very often, but it's been kind of fun, and I just got really engaged with it when I, like, read it, and so I thought it would be good for a topic. Yeah. 
Well, thanks for thanks for diving into it. Hopefully, we can get this episode down to under two hours. It's going to be an effort. I think you can do it. Now, thirty would be ideal, but see. Uh, Aaron, you want to take us out? Yeah. All right, go. All right, guys. Thanks for joining us on Approximate Knowledge. This is again Aaron. Approximate Knowledge. (laughs) Oh, Jade. I'm Nick. And we are Approximate Knowledge, and we will. The three marks of tears. I still think that's a good podcast name. It's not a good podcast. (laughs) Three marks of tears. Let me know if you think it was great. Tell us in the. Not changing it. The Gmail. Oh, we never did. Oh, we and never the, did our email and things. Give us a like month. on Facebook. You, you still got outro music. Oh, okay. I got outro. Remember to follow us on Facebook at Approximate Knowledge SLC. Also on Instagram, Approximate Knowledge SLC, or email us at approximatek at gmail And if you found this episode, then I'm sure you know where to find our other episodes. Yeah, check them out. Keep listening. Also, we started another podcast feed, Revolutionary Audio Archive, for um, making audio versions of Marxist classics. Uh, check that and out, hopefully too. some Marxist news coming soon. Yeah. So many podcasts. So... Little time. Little time. All right. Bye. Bye.